Good morning, everyone. We're going to continue today working our way through the book of Exodus this morning. And the chapters that I've been allocated, chapters 13 and 14, at least in my mind, uh, really lend themselves to two messages because they cover two quite distinct topics. So what I'm going to do this morning is to split the message into two parts uh, and we're going to have a little intermission in the middle where we will share communion together. And I think that by the time we get there, uh, the reason for doing that will become obvious. Now, the benefits of scoring consecutive messages from the same book is that I can revisit some of the things that I thought were really important from the previous two chapters, but that I had to leave out of our last Exodus message for the sake of time. So this morning, you're going to get two messages plus half the message that we should have covered last time. And you know what? One of the only benefits that I can see of live streaming our services is that I can't hear any of you groaning. Hopefully, uh, you will recall from last time that Israel, having been obedient to the command of God to take a spotless lamb for each household and kill it and then paint the, the blood of, of that lamb over their door frames of their houses, they were spared from the judgment of God who struck down all of the firstborn in Egypt but passed over the homes of the Israelites when he saw their painted door frames. Waking in the night to find his own firstborn son dead and every other Egyptian firstborn dead, Pharaoh summoned Moses and ordered the Israelites out of Egypt. And so as we left off last time, Israel were carrying their unleavened dough on their shoulders and the silver and gold of Egypt in their pouches, heading out of Egypt, rejoicing and with singing in the direction of the promised land. Now, there are some things in your lifetime that you just won't forget. And I think for any of those Israelites who lived through that night and through what was to come, it was something that they would never forget. It changed their own lives personally forever and it changed the future of their people forever. And I don't think that any one of us who has lived through 2020 is ever going to forget it in a hurry. Years from now, my generation will be telling their grandchildren and great-grandchildren about the year when life as we knew it drew to a halt that year when we couldn't touch anyone and when we all got around wearing masks on our faces. And, you know, I, I really hope that they find it amusing and they laugh because that will mean that for them life has gone back to normal. But there are some things in our lives that we won't forget. But move on a few generations and what was meaningful or unforgettable for us they don't even know about. And if you don't want that to happen, then you have to do something active to ensure that the memory prevails. And so that's why we have a march on Anzac Day. And that's why some people write down their life story so that those that come after them can read it. That's why we take photographs and collect them for our children. 
We do these things to help make sure that the memories live on. And here in this instance, salvation from the judgment of God by the shed blood of the lamb is something that God does not want the Israelites to forget ever. And so he makes sure that they won't forget it by giving them four very practical ways to remember. Firstly, in in chapter 12, verse 2, he's going to rearrange their calendar. Verse 2 says, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Now, can you think of anyone or anything else that has had a similar impact on our calendar? And I think most of you will know the answer to that. You can see those big red hands coming out um, from last week. Israel's calendar would be built around their Passover lamb, just like our calendar is built around Jesus, our Passover lamb. We date time, BC and AD, around Christ. Now, there's also going to be two festivals. The first of these is going to be Passover itself, when the Passover lambs were to be sacrificed each year, commemorating that first Passover in Egypt. And the second is the festival of unleavened bread, when for seven days no yeast or products containing yeast were to be found in the home, and the only bread that could be eaten was to be unleavened bread. This festival commemorates their coming up out of Egypt, carrying their dough without yeast, because there had not been time to add the yeast because they had left in haste. And so important are these festivals that the instructions for each of them can be found not once, not twice, but three times across chapters 12 and 13. And to make sure that the importance of these festivals would not be lost down through the generations, God even gives them the script with which they are to speak to their own children as they partake in these ceremonies each year. Exodus 12, 26, in relation to the Passover, God says, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And then in relation to the festival of unleavened bread, on that day, says God in Exodus 13:8, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. Now, if there was any possibility of any of the Jews missing the message in these annual commemorations of Passover and unleavened bread, which I think is unlikely, no one could escape the reality of the final ceremony that was to be associated with Passover. For in it, every firstborn male of the livestock had to either be killed or redeemed with the blood of a lamb. And likewise, every firstborn human baby boy also had to be redeemed. And yet again, God provides the script 
for the Israelites to speak to their children. Exodus 13, 14 to 15, in relation to this redemption ceremony, he says, In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. Passover was a single day in the lifetime of a single generation of the Jews, but that single day would forever change their history. Because on that day, they were spared from judgment and freed from bondage in Egypt by coming under that shed blood of the lamb. And that was something that God did not want them to forget. On a single day, roughly 2,000 years ago, the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, was shed on the cross. And we are likewise spared from judgment and we are freed from bondage to sin by coming under the covering of the blood. A single day that has forever changed the history of the world. A day that we should never forget. It's a day that God does not want us to forget and that's why Jesus prescribed a means for us to remember. And we're going to do that right now as we take communion together. In preparation for the festival of unleavened bread, devout Jews to this day will spend many days seeking out and cleansing their homes of leaven or yeast. This, of course, involves cleaning out their pantries, but it also involves washing any items that might have come in contact with crumbs. This could include kitchen utensils, floors, carpets, clothing. Even the walls might need to be scrubbed down. For Christians, leaven represents sin. And so as we come to share together uh, in this time of communion, we would do well to approach our commemoration here today with the same fastidious preparation that the Jews approach theirs. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 to 8, get rid of the old yeast, that you, meaning the church, may be a new batch without the yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. By his death, we have been spared from judgment and freed from the bondage of sin because Christ took it upon himself. And so we need to act like that new batch that we are made without yeast. 
And what better time than as we come around the Lord's table together to commemorate his death in the way that he's instructed us to do, to conduct a thorough self-examination, seeking out sin just as the Jews sought out the leaven in the corners of their homes. So we're going to spend some time now together just in quiet preparation, just for a few moments as you do that self-examination, seek out sin in every corner of your life and offer it up to God for forgiveness of sins as we prepare to share together. Father God, your death spared us from judgment and frees us from being captive to sin. And Lord, that is something that we never want to forget or to take for granted. Thank you for sending Jesus, our Passover lamb. Father, we want to come spotlessly clean before you this morning. And so we offer up all that has contaminated our lives, all that we know of as sin from this past week. The crude remarks, the nasty thoughts, the bad attitudes, short tempers, our doubts, laziness, envy, whatever it is, Lord, we lay it at the foot of the cross knowing that since we come under that covering of your shed blood, these sins can hold us captive no more. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ given and the blood of Christ shed for us. Amen. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, for I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we remember you and we love you. Amen. Nine-year-old Joey returned from 
his Sunday school class. And his mother asked him over lunch what they'd taught him in Sunday school. Well, Mum, he said, you know Moses, don't you? Yes, she said. Well, it was amazing. God sent Moses on a top secret rescue mission. And he went behind enemy lines. And it was his job to get the people out of Egypt. And so he organised all those Hebrews into armed resistance groups. And they got out of there as fast as they could in their jeeps and their tanks. But Pharaoh came after them with his army. And his army had heat-seeking devices. And so they found those Israelites pretty quick. And they started shooting at them from their jet planes in the sky. And when Moses and the Israelites got to the Red Sea, they thought they were done for because Pharaoh's army had them surrounded. But Moses had an engineer division and they came to the rescue, saving the day by constructing this pontoon bridge, which the Israelites were all able to run across. And when they got to the other side, they turned and they threw hand grenades and blew up this pontoon bridge so the Egyptians couldn't come after them. Joey said his mother, is that really what they taught you in Sunday school this morning? Well, not exactly, conceded Joey, but if I told you what they told me, there's no way you would believe it. You know, over the years, people have come up with all sorts of phenomena to explain the Red Sea crossing. And some of them are more fanciful than even little Joey's version of events. You've probably heard some of them for yourself. Some sort of sandbar existed. And Israel walked across on this sandbar before it disappeared. So the Egyptians couldn't come after them. Or there was some sort of natural phenomenon known as wind set down, which just happened to stop in this one place and stay there long enough for two million Israelites to get across. Or perhaps it wasn't actually a sea. It was really kind of more like a marshy area that wasn't really that deep at all, so they could just walk through. In my opinion, many of these explanations are far more difficult to explain than what the Bible says actually happened. Arguably, the greatest miracle in all of the Old Testament. We pick up that miracle with Israel heading out of Egypt in a southeasterly direction. Now, east was the direction to Canaan. East was the direction in which they should have been heading. East was the direction they would have been heading if any one of us had been planning their journey. But no mere mortal was in charge of this travel itinerary. God took them on an indirect route towards the promised land because had they taken the most direct route, that would have taken them along the coast where they would have encountered numerous Egyptian fortifications. And God knew they weren't ready for battle yet. 13.18 tells us Israel went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Yet God says in verse 17, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. 
on the one hand, armed for battle, on the other, likely to flee if they actually faced that battle. Outwardly, looking every bit the part. Inwardly, perhaps not quite so sure. And so they head out in a southeasterly direction because God had plenty yet to teach them before they would be ready for battle. Ever feel like that yourself? Outwardly looking every bit the Christian? Inwardly, perhaps not quite so sure. Stay tuned. God has plenty of lessons for us to learn in the wilderness. So they're about to embark on this long distance journey through the desert. And you know, when you're traveling as a group by car, space in the car is limited and you've got to keep your luggage to a minimum and pack well. But there's always that one person that has to take their hairdryer, even though you know that where you're going, there already is a hairdryer. Or someone that can't do without their own personal pillow or personal doona, and so you're all squashed up in the car with this great big doona next to you. Well, take a look at Moses. He's not going anywhere without the bones of great-great-uncle Joseph. Imagine that as they're all packing in haste, not even time to wait for their bread to rise, eating with their sandals on and their staff in their hand. But hold it, here comes Moses and he's got a box and we've got to get this box on the cart. What is it? Oh, it's just this great big box of bones. Why has the writer included this seemingly mundane detail of their luggage in an otherwise action-packed story? Well, chances are it's been included because it's important. And if you flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 and 25 will tell you why. Remember hundreds of years earlier, Joseph sold into slavery, Joseph the dreamer thrown into jail, Joseph who became the interpreter of dreams, who rose to become second in charge only to Pharaoh in Egypt, Joseph, who saved all of Egypt and all of his own quite extensive family from famine and lived out his days in Egypt. Well, on his deathbed, that Joseph spoke a word of prophecy to his brothers, telling them, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then he made his brothers promise on oath that when God did come to their aid, they would carry his bones out of Egypt. Moses knows this. He knows that's why they're, where they're headed. And so he's going to honour that promise by packing the bones of his dead ancestor. And that seemingly insignificant detail speaks volumes. Firstly, of the faith of Joseph, sure of what he hoped for and certain of what he could not see, the faith of Moses and the faithfulness of God in keeping his covenant promises. Those bones of Jacob would be on the move for quite some time. Bones of Joseph would be on the move for quite some time until eventually they were laid to rest in Shechem 
at the end of the book of Joshua. Now I wonder whether somewhere along the way as that first generation were dying out in the wilderness, did that second generation ever think, we've been carrying these bones for a long time, can't we just leave them here? But they didn't. And eventually he was buried in the promised land. What a journey it must have been. By day, the Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light. They could travel by day or by night. All they had to do was follow the pillar. No one had to plan the journey or consult a map or even give much thought to what they were doing. Just follow that pillar, which would have been just fine until the pillar started backtracking. God instructs Moses to turn Israel back, not to retreat, just to backtrack and encamp near Pihiroth between Migdol and the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to sense that perhaps there might have been a little uncertainty in the minds of the Israelites when after walking for days, they're told to turn around and head back in roughly the direction in which they came. However, God graciously explains his plan to Moses. Pharaoh is going to think you're wandering in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and he's going to pursue you. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So Israel turns, and verse 9 tells us that In spite of whatever they might have been thinking in their mind, they marched boldly towards Pi-Hiroth. But boldness quickly gives way to fear when they hear a rumble in the distance. And that rumble draws closer and they begin to see the dust pluming on the horizon. And eventually they realise that Pharaoh has sent the full force of the massive Egyptian army after them and they're stuck in no man's land. To the north lie those Egyptian fortifications that God had made them avoid in the first place because he knew they would turn back if they had to face war. So we can't escape to the north. To the south is desert. No point trying to escape south. To the west is Egypt the road back to slavery, and now almost certainly the road to death. East is the direction they should be heading, but they can't because they're hemmed in by the Red Sea. And if things couldn't get any more ominous for the Israelites, they are camped directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now, Baal Zephon was known as the god of sea and storm. Baal, meaning Lord, and Zephon said to come from Mount Zephon, where Baal supposedly led the pantheon of Canaanite gods. Baal Zephon was a Canaanite god whose influence had spread to Egypt. And because Baal Zephon was considered a protector of maritime trade and travel, worship sites had been constructed around the coast. 
and hence Baal Zephon also came to be a place name. Now what exactly the Israelites were camped opposite is not entirely clear. Was it a mountain? Was it a monument? Or was it a place? We don't know. But whatever it was, it was well known and its name carries great spiritual significance. Behind them was Egypt and the plethora of Egyptian gods. Ahead of them, Canaan and the gods of the people of that land, here represented by Baal Zephon. Can you see what God has set up here? It's the ultimate checkmate. Israel is in a very vulnerable place. There's only two options. Return to slavery is their best bet, but probably die at the hands of the Egyptians or trust God for a miracle. For Pharaoh, he thinks the battle's won. Unfortunately for Egypt, in spite of all that Pharaoh has seen through the plagues, Pharaoh still doesn't understand who he's dealing with here. And finally, after demonstrating the complete powerlessness of all of the gods of Egypt through the plagues, Yahweh is about to send his people through the sea so that the Egyptians and the Canaanites, who believed that the sea was under the control of Zaphon, would see exactly who was in control. So here in this one move, God is going to demonstrate his power over nature. He's going to prove himself to be the one true God. He's going to defeat the Egyptian army and he's going to teach Israel a lesson that they're not going to forget in a hurry. Think about it. God defeated so many of Israel's enemies in battle in what we might think of as a more conventional way of doing things. Israel left Egypt armed for battle, but God had other plans. What happened at the Red Sea is no accident. Israel didn't get themselves trapped and then God had to send them through the sea sort of as a rescue plan because they got stuck. Something very different is going on here. It's got the fingerprints of the master all over it. What God has done here, this place where he has led them is strategic and it is profoundly spiritual. This is not a conflict between two armies. It's not goodies versus baddies. It's much bigger than that. It is good versus evil. And as the thunder of hooves draws louder, Israel hit the panic button and they look around for someone to blame. And so Moses cops the first of what will be many earfuls as Israel look longingly back at their life of slavery. Vulnerability. It exposes our weaknesses, doesn't it? For many of us now, we're in vulnerable situations. 2020 has put us in a situation of vulnerability. And when we're most vulnerable, that is when we're most likely to be tempted. For them, it was to look longingly back to their life of slavery. But for us, it is perhaps something different. For us, perhaps we look longingly back to our old life, a life of sin. 
In both instances, the circumstances make us vulnerable and vulnerability causes us to take our eyes off God and to succumb to temptation. And God gives Israel five directions through Moses and they are five directions that apply equally to us today when we find ourselves in a vulnerable place. And the first of those is fear not. Now, fear not are hardly easy words to hear when you have the full force of the Egyptian army right on your heels and you're stuck with nowhere to go. They're equally not easy words to hear when you've just lost your job and you aren't sure how you're going to manage to pay your bills or feed your family. They are equally not easy words to hear when you're facing a negative medical diagnosis. And they're not easy words to hear when you find yourself all alone in life. Fear is one of those F words. And it leads to plenty more F words. We see them in the reaction of Israel and we know them to be true in our own lives. Fear leads to fault finding, which leads to false accusations. Fear causes us to lose focus, to focus on the object of our fear and in doing so, we forget the reality of our situation. It had hardly been any time at all since the Israelites had emerged safe and well from under their blood-stained door frames. But now all of that was seemingly forgotten in the face of fear. Don't allow fear to steal your perspective. Fear not, says God. Next thing he says is stand firm. Do not let your heart fail or falter through unbelief. Stand firm in what you believe and watch for the deliverance of the Lord. And then he says, be still. And in the context of the next command, be still here is not stand in one spot and do nothing. It doesn't mean don't look for other jobs if you've lost your job. But it means hold your peace. Wait for God's will to be revealed. Next, he says, move on or go forward. If you want to see the miracle in your life, at some point, you have to move on, even if there is a swirling sea in front of you. How often do we miss the miracles in our lives because fear paralyzes us? and prevents us from moving on to the next step with God. And the most beautiful part of this entire passage is what God does next. The pillar of cloud that had been in front of them up to now circles back behind them and stands between them and their fear, the approaching Egyptians. And isn't that a much better way of looking at your fear, not head on, but through God 
Fear not, stand firm, be still and move on. And the rest of this story I'm sure most of you know very well. Moses raises his staff, holds out his hand over the sea just as God told him to do. The waters part, Balzephon is shown to be powerless and Israel cross all through the night on dry ground. Pharaoh's army pursues them, the Lord throws them into chaos and then directs Moses to stretch out his hand again and the waters close over the Egyptians, their chariots and their horsemen. Greatest miracle in the Old Testament, which is matched only by the greatest miracle in the New Testament. On that day in Israel's history, God won a decisive victory over evil and the Israelites emerged on the other side of the sea truly free. He has since fought and won victory over evil and he did it for us. And just as Passover points us to the work of Jesus on the cross, so Israel's crossing from death to life, captivity to freedom, as they emerged on the other side of the Red Sea, points us to the resurrection of Jesus, where he defeated death, that we might know eternal life and also freedom from the captivity of our sin. The gift of salvation is certainly God's greatest miracle, a miracle performed for each one of us. And chapter 14 ends with these words, and when the Israelites saw the great power of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. When the Israelites saw the Lord, they feared the Lord. They were in reverent awe of him and they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. An equally mighty miracle, the miracle of salvation, has been worked on our behalf. Death has been defeated and we have been reconciled to our holy God. Turn and look in reverent awe at what the Lord has done and put your trust in him. Today we've got a, a treat for you as we will later turn those closing thoughts um, into a reflective time using a song of praise that Sarah and Ed have put together for us. Um, the Lord is my salvation. And as we do, I want you to turn your thoughts to all that the Lord has done for you. But first, let me pray as we close. Lord, you are amazing and we stand in awe of who you are and what you have done. We thank you for the encouragement to our faith that these stories of old bring to us and for the way that they speak so vividly to us even though we are many, many years removed from these events. Father, although the seas may swirl around us and the enemy may be behind us, we know that we are on solid ground because you are our salvation.
For those facing very real fears right now, we pray that you would circle around them, that they would allow you to come between them and their fears to bring their situation into a godly perspective. Bless them this week, we pray, Lord. Amen. And I echo the words of the Apostle Paul as our time together comes to an end this morning. May the eyes of your heart be opened so that you may know his incomparably great work for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. May you know this power, this resurrection power for all of us who believe as you go about your week. Turn and look in reverent awe at what the Lord has done and put your trust in him as we sing together our closing song. Of waiting times of 